Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Almost there. Almost there. Bugger. Your vocabulary certainly has been colourful of late. I blame it on the company I'm keeping. Bless you, Wally. Are you still working on that case from... Agent Darcy, yes. She is quite thorough in her report. Brilliant, that is, without saying. Oh, I remember hearing tell of this case. Quite epic. A cross-reference with Agent Rossi's Shadows of Calcutta, yes? Indeed. Well, Agent Darcy did warn me if we came across her file, it would take some time to catalogue, so she offered me this. What's that? Lunch. Oh, and as Agent Darcy's Our Lady of India, she... Eliza, what... what is... She's stationed in Edinburgh, Welly. Tuck in. But that's... That's... Haggis Tandoori. Yes, I know. And Suna has worked very hard on this. So, tuck in and play part one of her story. Those Dark Satanic Mills by Suna Darcy featuring a character created by Phil Rossi. Chapter 1 Beehive Mill, Ancoats, District of Manchester, England, 1893. Tobias had perfected the movement. Slide, grab, flatten, press, cut. His clammy fist clutched the fabric and pulled it taut in order to steam press it pristinely smooth. The enormous heated surface lowered with a deep thrum, expelled the steam and locked down. The extreme heat fused the volatiles and fine thread-like components together into the hybrid super flexible textile that repelled water and was currently England's most profitable commodity. Tobias, his face and eyes streaming with the heat, waited for the amalgamation process to finish and the stamp press rose with a mighty hiss. He pulled the lever that lowered the mechanical blade, which cut the fabric into manufactory standard length with a deceptively soft whoosh. Minuscule particles drifted through the air, stuck to his lobster-red face and relentlessly wormed their way into his lungs, soft as dandelion fluff but infinitely more deadly. He started the work three years ago, when he was 14 and the machinery was first introduced to the British manufactories. Improvements had been made on the original Indian model, 
but it was still precision work that required keeping your head if you didn't want to lose it. He had yet to earn enough wages to afford the weekly rental of a mask to protect his face. He barely made enough for his supper and a tiny room in the meagre boarding house he lived in. Back and forth, slide, grab, flatten, press, cut. After the break whistle at noon, Tobias joined, then wandered away from the other young workers. They were running the length of Bengal Street with rocks in their hands and chasing a gaunt stray dog that had caught their eye. Tobias, his hunger greater than his thirst for cruel diversion, sauntered along the riverbank, poked at the slick mud with his bare foot and wistfully dreamt of steaming plates of stew. Suddenly, a flash of bright orange snagged the corner of his eye. He looked up, blinking, but only the grey brickwork of the manufactory met his stare. Tobias peeked around the corner of the building. Hunger or no, the colour was too foreign to be dismissed out of hand. Yes, he was not mistaken. He saw an orange glow through the shrubbery by the manufactory gate. He looked around to see if any of his chums were nearby. Perhaps his friend Joseph would come with him, but he could see no one. He'd have to explore alone. When he looked back, however, the shrubbery was as craggy and twisted as ever, with no extraordinary colours to distract him. He stared and stared, but the whistle sounded again. Tobias set his jaw and made his way slowly back indoors. Soon, in the meticulous dance of steam press and blade arm, any thought of the unusual left him. Outside, a roiling bank of slate-grey clouds gathered up what daylight was left, accompanied by soft drum rolls of thunder in the distance. It was with this tenebrous sky at his back that the ash-covered man, clad in nothing but a dirty orange loincloth, emerged from the ditch. He used a strange metal trident to clamber out and strode towards the entrance to the manufactory floor while neatly circumventing the sorting room and the gatekeeper's offices. His knotted hair, garlanded with impossibly vibrant orange and yellow blossoms, framed what was visible of his face under a wild beard. Dark brown, fiercely alert eyes smouldered keenly from beneath a tangled brow. He effortlessly slid the manufactory door aside, exposing the tumult of men and metal inside. As the base thunder of the approaching storm competed with the hiss and clatter of the machinery within, the unlikely figure raised his trident and began to hum a sonorous tone. His lips barely parted as the foreign sound undulated from his throat in a slow crescendo until the air around his head seemed to vibrate and shimmer as on a hot summer noon. Thin blue sparks crackled at the tips of his trident. Those nearest the door finally became aware of the draft and looked up briefly, distracted from their work. They gawked at the unexpected sight and forgot what their hands were doing. With the steady rhythm of the machinery disturbed, the first terror soon occurred. A lad working his cloth raised his head only to accidentally knock the lever of the mecha blade. At first there was no sound but when the blade was thwarted by bone, there was a sharp crunching and screeching of machinery gears. One by one, the machines fell silent as everyone turned aghast towards the source of the alien sound and the pool of burgundy melancholy that slowly formed beneath the machine closest to the door. Joseph! Several adult workers ran from their station towards the accident. Their shock at the boy's death overwhelmed their sense of strangeness at the sight of the garlanded apparition. The foreman cautiously approached the stranger, 
egged on by the furious millmaster to remove the filthy beggar from the premises. The humming ceased as the men approached and a threatening bellow of rock from the man in the doorway halted them in their tracks. As the thunder pealed directly overhead, the unkempt creature opened the gap in his beard once more and began a loud chant. The foreman hesitated, looking to their master, uncertain as how to proceed. One of them coughed to hide his discomfort. Not very manly to be put off by one scrawny old man shouting rubbish after all. <coughs> he coughed again, frowned. A rattle sounded in his throat and he lifted his hands up to his face. Then he doubled over and started coughing uncontrollably, clutching at the man next to him for support. His eyes were streaming, his features were twisted with surprise. He gasped with terror and screamed, Demon! Demon! His fellow worker pushed him off angrily. What's with you, Samson? Get a grip! It's just an old man! <coughs> then he too coughed, and at that same moment the whole work hall started to echo with multiple coughs and screams. The millmaster was not exempt. He gripped the balustrade on the landing to his office, purple-faced from the racking cough in his gullet. Terror at an unseen dread blazed in his eyes. Grown men and women cried and fought each other. Some workers crawled backwards underneath the machinery. They sobbed piteously with arms outstretched, as if to ward off an assailant. Ay, Carla Duespa. The dark creature waved the trident tirelessly as he chanted on and on. Slowly, silence descended. Every tear-streaked face turned towards him. Every throat made the same soft, high-pitched yowl of distress. The dark eyes of the old man glittered as he struck the butt of his trident into the floor. One, two, three times. With hoarse, thunderous finality, he declared, Maut! 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 Pekosaba! With that, all bodies before him went rigid, fell over and started jerking uncontrollably. Taut, spasming fingers clutched at nothing. Eyes rolled sickeningly in chalk-white faces. He nodded with satisfaction, turned on his heel and whisked out the door, disappearing into the sheets of pelting rain that followed the thunder. Chapter 2. A Woman's Work Barking, ma'am! The inspector looked haunted. Agent Imogen Feverier looked up from her notebook. You mean they went mad? The police inspector looked exasperated and disturbed at the same time. Ma'am, I mean they were actually barking. When we were alerted to trouble, I'd never imagined I'd see such a sight. On all fours, bumping into the walls and yelping, owling and snarling their heads off like dogs they were. Some were fighting under the machines, many of which were still running unchecked. 
and, well, behaving like dogs in every other way. His eyes flickered away from her and his face flamed magenta. I'll never use that phrase in levity again. Some constables hovered near the office door and sniggered, sniffing each other, and then they dropped dead, one whispered loudly. Agent Fevier turned sharply. This amuses you. I can't see why. The constable landed his fist on his desk and snapped, Scarper, Barnet, chew, and shut the door. Once alone, she prompted, The workers who were found alive, you were telling me where they were sent? I must speak with them. As you appear to have nothing useful to say, she thought impatiently, I wish your shock wouldn't impede the gathering of actual information. With the address provided, she thanked the inspector as politely as she could, but she was eager to be away. He walked her to the door of the police station, and just as she thought she was finally free, he said, Ma'am, forgive my bluntness, but are you all there sent? There it was. With as neutral a countenance as she could manage, Agent Fevier looked up at him. I beg your pardon? Your department, well, I thought they might send more people. Teams of investigators, more men, Inspector Johnson. He had the good grace to look mortified. More people, ma'am, he repeated clumsily. This community consists of simple working folk and the papers are screaming black magic and mayhem, especially now that two more of these characters have wreaked havoc in the other mills. And you feel ill-equipped to handle people whose imagination is fueled by such intangible things. Not straightforward thievery or murder, is it? She almost felt sorry for him as she saw her observation hit the mark. Could you not suggest to your ministry that a scholar of the occult might aid us in soothing troubled imaginations? He could perhaps work with the clergymen. The families of the deceased have already tried to burn down the first mill as a palace of Satan. It's a good thing it was abandoned because the workers haven't dared to go back. Inspector, wouldn't sending such a scholar be seen as a confirmation that the tragic events of last week resulted from dark and sinister practices? Agent Fevier said gently. Are we not in the business of eliminating that line of thinking? Are you not better off hunting for these three madmen, if indeed they are not one and the same? Inspector Johnson huffed and squinted at her. Both mills fell to bedlam at the same time of day and you know it. My men are working round the clock. What your point really is, ma'am, is that I know my townsfolk best. Ergo, I should be able to handle them while you run with the big boys. Agent Fevier couldn't stop herself. She burst out laughing. He looked like such a disgruntled, hard-done-by schoolboy she could practically see the frog spawn wriggle in his pockets. When she shook his hand in farewell, the inspector used a moment to crush hers rather viciously. He clearly hoped for a reaction. However, with a sunny smile and a nod of her head, she disappeared into her carriage and left him with nothing else to do but grit his teeth. While her train puffed and whistled its way towards her appointment in Preston, Agent Fevier frowned her way through the latest Manchester broadsheet. 
the melodramatic headlines made mention of invocations of madness, barking bedlam by magic, and a sorcerous Hindustani trio. Why would a Hindu holy man travel all the way to Manchester? She fished around in a reticule and unfolded her reference note to memorise the name of her contact. Agent Robert Smith, quarter to three, Beckwith's Tea Room. Agent Fevier recalled his archive file clearly. A very rum case. Hopefully, Agent Smith would be less opaque than Sound as to why he had requested to meet her. Sound had implied she should encourage Smith to join her in her investigation, but she wondered if someone who had so decidedly relegated himself to office work was not better left alone. As the train rattled through England's tame landscape, she reflected on her situation. When she had been given this surprising assignment, she soon learned that none of the usual agents in the office deemed it worth their attention. They were convinced that the event was due to some conjurous shenanigans and the tragic deaths the result of crowd panic. She was aware of the implied insult this carried, but decided she'd rather eat her pride and sit in her office one moment longer. With all her clearances stamped and signed, she'd been ready to head to her lodgings to pack. She was recalled, however by the manager's green-looking clerk. He clutched a piece of paper, while all the most prominent agents in the office hovered at his back, whispering, Madam, please wait. You're urgently wanted upstairs. Dr Sound has come from London. Staring out the train's suit-filmed window, Agent Fevier could not contain a smug grin. Her colleagues had instantly known that her case was now high-profile the case they had so cavalierly passed over. On top of it all, if they knew about the small piece of machinery Sound had given her, they would chew their moustaches with jealousy. Even though she currently had no inkling how to use the device, she was infinitely proud to have been entrusted with it at all. A prototype, Miss Feverfew. Not yet officially registered. Ah, uh, uh, year. apologies. You may need this more than any combat device we could provide you with. I recommend you have a practice run in a discreet place. I also suggest you brush up on mesmerism and bioazoic kinetic exchange. He had looked grave but encouraging. She hadn't dared to admit that he might as well have spoken Russian when it came to his last remark. Agent Fevier found that her contact was already waiting on the platform and a train arrived. It could only be Robert Smith. She noted his ruby lotus-shaped lapel pin, clearly crafted in India, and his walking cane was made from teak rather than the usual ash. And even after all this time, he had not lost his slight pallor. Imogen Fevier, he said curtly, with only an illusion of a bow. Robert Smith. Let's not dawdle on inanities. Follow me, please. As forward as Agent Fevier herself was, this took her aback. She thought he wanted to speak with her. Sound had implied as much. But it was crystal clear that Agent Smith resented being there at all.
So you see, Agent Fivier, I am in no way inclined to join you in your investigation, and if I may, I'll strongly discourage you from your mission altogether. Agent Fivier stared at Agent Smith across the tea shop table, their conversation well out of earshot of any others taking an afternoon's repast. Her scone was mashed to bits in her gloved fingers. Her tea sat stone cold in its cup. She didn't even care that he was the first ministry official to call her agent like an equal. So insulted was she by everything else. Agent Smith, Imogen began, then closed her mouth. Eventually she composed herself and said, Will you accept my apologies on behalf of the office? Your experiences in Kolkata have... altered you. Dr Sound was clearly wrong to expect you to accompany me to India. My visit to the victims today is merely a formality. I shall set sail on the earliest steamer after that. I do not expect to gain much insight speaking to haunted workers. But we leave no stone unturned, as you know. Moreover, you must be aware that if I were to discontinue, other agents would take my place. I don't see your intentions in even suggesting it. Robert Smith's face went through a distinct evolution during this little speech. Surprise, disbelief and then mounting anger. Do you always patronise people like that, Agent Fivier? It hit close to home. She flinched but said defiantly, I give what I receive, Agent Smith. You strongly suggest to me to not pursue my investigation because you think I am not good enough, not strong enough, not experienced enough. Well, I can't begin to imagine what you witnessed in India, but I see that it has frightened you away from field duty. What am I to make of that in relation to myself? I've read your archive file. You conducted yourself most excellently, but came away wounded in more than body. I thought well of you in any case but now you have insisted on telling me your entire story firsthand, solely to deter me from doing my duty? You might well accompany me into the face of these exotic perils. You are more than qualified to do so, but instead you retreat and tell me to do the same. Clearly you had the arrogance to assume that you were impervious to the hazards of your occupation, and now you have found to your detriment that you were not. That is a cross you must bear alone, but do not inflict your cowardice on me. The moment she uttered the last phrase, she knew she'd crossed the line in a manner so irrevocable she was not surprised when he lunged for her and gripped her wrist so hard it made her eyes water. But she'd meant every word. Smith's harrowing tale of Kolkata notwithstanding, this assignment could make her name in the ministry and she was determined to see it through. Smith's attempt to put her off was galling in the extreme. She glared back at him in spite of her swimming eyes. Her hand was slowly going numb, but she refused to look away. Agent Smith swallowed, released her and rose stiffly. He grasped his walking stick hard and said through clenched teeth, Madam, if you were male, you would have felt my fist in your jaw and deservedly so. Remove yourself from my sight before I change my mind and decide you are unladylike enough to merit it. There was nothing left to say. She gathered up a reticule and archive folder and left the tea shop for the train to Whittingham Asylum. During the journey, she found she regretted only one thing. It was not her own rudeness or her disregard for his advanced experience. Agent Robert Smith had been a different creature in the last moments of their confrontation and she regretted that she had never had the chance to know that man. 
he'd been focused and ignited by her challenge. Not at all an individual who moved through life crushed by memories. Chapter 3 Abort the SS Saxe-Coburg III As her steamer carried her towards India, Imogen could not forget the boy she'd spoken to at the asylum. The youngster's ravaged appearance had shocked her. He'd looked 70 instead of 17. Where the other mill workers still showed clear signs of acute madness, including occasional bouts of barking, Tobias had merely looked like someone who had witnessed a terrible thing and lost all love for life. Unlike some of the others, he did not experience sudden spasms, panics or episodes of rocking backwards and forwards, murmuring, Baba Maud, Baba Maud, they're calling to him, said Tobias and shivered. Papa death. Naked as a baby were, except for his smalls and them marigolds. That stick of his was shooting blue lightning. She'd frowned at the boy and asked how he knew what they were saying. But he scornfully set her straight by saying, I can read. Indicating that he had seen the broadsheet which had employed translators to reproduce the sorcerer's words in English. He then gave her his full account of events. Later, however, when she'd reread her notes, she'd found she had made an error of perception. There was no indication as to how Tobias might have known the Hindu words for halt and death come to all, or that the flowers were marigolds for that matter. The papers only translated the Hindustani's main incantation, which, according to the writers, was evil come to the fabric mills. Tobias, however, with a wary look, had said, He put up his arms and shouted, Nightmare reflect the fabric thieves. Nightmare reflect the fabric thieves. Then he muttered in a threatening sing-song, The Hindi which sprang from Tobias's lips so easily was not a repetition of any of the sadhu's words. They seemed to have no concrete source whatsoever. Roughly translated, it meant Dark nightmare, death, death, death. God Yama kisses the sleeping. Yama being the Hindu god of death. She had not been able to get another word out of him after that. He simply stared past her and refused to meet her eye. Just as she'd been on the verge of giving up, She'd noticed him playing with something in his pocket, but assumed it to be the fidgeting of a nervous boy. Then, at that last moment, a vibrant orange shimmer between his fingers made her grab his hand. As she touched him, Tobias had become a writhing fury. Agent Feverier was appalled to find that even as the boy snarled and spat, his eyes streamed with tears and he kept trying to speak through gnashing teeth. He was, alas, completely unintelligible, his face a burning mask of tears and terror. She knew now she'd made a second error. 
she had not entertained the possibility that here might have been two spirits fighting for possession of the same body. And here she was, stuck at sea for another week with no means of re-examining Tobias. Fervently hoping her destination would yield concrete clues, Agent Fevier was extremely keen to see Haura district, where the Kolkata manufactories were. Meanwhile, she'd just have to curb her impatience and prepare as best she could. Chapter 4 Kolkata Jana, Jana! Imogen clutched the silk scarf that protected her hair from the city dust as her rickshaw driver pulled the lever on his machine and shouted, Go! Having spent barely half a day in the land described as so dire by Agent Smith, she found it like nothing she could have imagined. Yes, the stench was formidable. The expression of exotic beliefs was omnipresent. The amount of human life squeezed together on one patch of earth was overwhelming. At first glance, there was no structure to this world. It assaulted her senses as a heaving mass of colour and sound. But oh, it was marvellous. The smells of elephant and cow dung mingled with incense from the steam-powered temples with their moving statues. Black exhaust from the rickshaws blended into the heady scent of overripe fruit from the street vendor's stalls. The cacophony of humanity rose above it all. Voices were haggling, chatting, arguing and laughing in undulating lilts that were surprisingly musical to her ears. The architecture was a wild mishmash. The stamp of Lords Wellesley and Curzon lay on the modern buildings. Mosques, churches and Hindu temples jostled for position alongside each other and hovels, palaces and administrative buildings flew past her in a whirl as a rickshaw raced through the thronging streets. Imogen loved it here already. She was no wide-eyed innocent. Crushing poverty governed the slums. Dark cults threatened like storm clouds. The empire's clumsy foot pressed down firmly on the country's neck. Yet somehow, the enormity of the country and its atmosphere exhilarated her. So much so, she'd spent ten hours exploring the city in the rickshaw and she didn't want to stop yet. She knew the ministry would reprimand her severely when they heard of it, but it was beyond her control. The alien city mesmerised her as nothing had before. It was as if she had stolen a private, intimate moment with India itself, before the constraints of both cultures forced her back to her duties. Her rickshaw pulled up with a screech of brakes. The one that had been following hers, bearing her goods, stopped not far behind, and both drivers chatted languidly as they assisted Agent Fevier to the door of the ministry-arranged boarding house. Its sign sported a huge red pachyderm covered in marigolds, bearing a man on its back and carrying a trident in its trunk. Hati Kara, she read out loud. The young man nearest to her wiggled his head from side to side, a movement she knew to interpret as a nod. Gee, Memsab. It is Elephant House, Good Bed, Best Chai in Haura District. She smiled and after paying both drivers entered her lodgings. 
Her room delighted her. It was a crumbling building, but some modern soul had installed running water and a central coal-operated fan system. It did not exactly cool much, but at least it moved the air around a bit. As she learned soon enough, any air circulation in this sweltering climate was a blessing. Her furnishings were simple yet elegant. The carved walls on the teak writing desk put her in mind of Robert Smith's equally intricate walking stick. There he was again. She shook her head. Ever since her altercation with Smith, she had found it impossible to shake the thought of him. She knew she had judged him harshly, through the spectacles of her overheated ambition. Well, there was nothing she could do about it now. After bathing and taking her evening meal in her room, she ventured out into the neighbourhood. First stop, a local vendor, to buy a sun hat. She bitterly regretted refusing the pith helmet the ministry administrator had offered her. After making her purchase, she slipped from alleyway to alleyway, marking to herself where she had been until she found it. During her mad dash to the boarding house, she'd spotted what looked like an empty courtyard. Not being a complete fool, she'd strapped her standard-issue Remington Elliot to the inside of her left arm. She was a very confident shot, but hoped she would have no cause to use the weapon. The courtyard was abandoned. In fact, what looked like a courtyard from the gap through the alleyway was only the floor of half a collapsed building, which faced onto the most pungent rubbish heap she had ever encountered. She could hear doldrums and a flute in the building opposite. Fortunately, there were no windows facing the midden heap and the music would help to cover any unusual sounds. With an intake of tense breath, Agent Feverier upended her reticule and let the flat metal oval fall into her hand. It looked like a compact mirror. It even had a garden scene engraved on the outside. When she prized open the clasp, it was a different kettle of fish altogether. A soft whirring told her the device was active. One side was covered in glass and contained an intricate network of brass and copper coils submerged in a thick, clear, colourless fluid. The other side of the compact contained a fibrous, gum arabic-like substance, shot through with thin strands that met and disappeared into a copper disc at the centre. Into this substance, she hesitantly pressed her thumb. Dr. Sound's written instructions had been short, precise and utterly infuriating. The device will need your imprint. Use your finger on one side only. It will respond at optimum effect once it has integrated your imprint and you put it to use, especially if you are under duress. I need not tell you that this sort of thing is top secret, experimental only and at present highly illegal. You are one of the few agents I have that are compatible with such a device due to your maternal background. Agent Fivier, use it with caution, B.S. On reading this missive during her voyage, Imogen had broken a vase in her cabin. Her voice was shrill with rage as she shouted, My background! Sound, you rotter! Now, standing on a stinking pile of rubbish in the midst of a broiling Kolkata night, she felt a renewed flash of anger. What was it that sound knew? Her last name was common in England, yet unusual in society circles unless one transcended the working classes. The name Fever was often given to foundlings abandoned in the month of February, about whose origins nothing could be uncovered and who were in need of a surname. Most people in the circle she moved in today were either unaware of the meaning or too well-bred to point it out.
that she moved in these circles at all was due to a nameless benefactor who had also secured her place in a ministry training programme. Whether that had been Dr Basil Sound or someone else, he clearly knew something about her that she herself did not, to wit, her maternal background. Somehow, the device in her hand was able to bond with a particularly suitable person. Had her mother used it? Perhaps even designed it? How did Sound know her more intimately than she herself did? As the sense of betrayal surged through her, the device in her hand gave a resounding ding, clear as a bell and just as loud. Open-mouthed, she stared at the lid of the compact as it rotated until it faced outwards, glowing with a pinkish-blue light that reminded her of luminescent jellyfish. A tremor ran up her arm and resonated in her chest. The device pulsed in her hand. An oval-shaped shield erupted from the outward-facing side, impacted on the wall of the opposite building and lingered in the air for a moment before it dispersed without a trace. Instantly, she snapped the device shut, tucked it into a cleavage and bolted. The flash of light must have been seen at least ten streets away. Imogen dashed through the alleyways, cursing her skirts, her bustle and the heat, though most of all she cursed herself for being such a haphazard clod. Only in the vestibule of the boarding house did she pause to catch her breath and her composure. All the way up the stairs and along the corridor she fumed, but she stopped dead when she came to her quarters and saw that the door to her room was ajar. Faint footsteps and rustling came from within. She freed the three-barrelled pistol from its holster and slid towards her door on silent feet. The sounds continued uninterrupted now accompanied by a soft tearing noise. When she reached her room, she brought her foot forward until the tip of her boot connected with the door. Slowly she pushed it open. The rustling stopped. She heard a gasp and a loud thump. Imogen rushed forward and glimpsed a figure clad in orange and yellow silk. It darted out the window and cleared the adjacent veranda with inhuman speed. Sadu! She shouted instinctively and aimed her Remington Elliot in the direction of the orange bundle on legs. The bullet impacted with the ferocity of an angry packhorse. The cloud of silk convulsed, lurched forward and sprawled over the tiles of the roof below her. When horrified screams erupted from all directions, she realised she should get to him before someone else did. She could imagine what shooting a holy man would mean to an incensed mob. She was busily negotiating her bustle over the windowsill when a deadly silence seemed to descend around her. Agent Fivier looked up and a chill spread down her spine. The sadhu stood, ramrod straight on the roof, grinning. With slow deliberation he exposed his right shoulder and the ragged wound that was rapidly closing of its own accord. She shook her head and looked again, only to find the sadhu had disappeared entirely. Not even a skitter of feet could be heard in the distance to prove he had ever been there. To be continued.
nursing a love affair with science fiction and the macabre, and inspired by the works of Verne, Wells, Haggard, and Moorcock, Sunadasi is an accomplished musician, model, and writer, considering herself a direct product of the British Empire. It is Suna's own diversity and desire to read something different that led her to creating Steampunk India, the Steampunk Chronicle's reader's choice for best multicultural steampunk for 2014. Her writing presents characters that are engaging with a lively dollop of irreverence and some social commentary. And fun. Fun is good. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.